Welcome to those of you who are in visiting, maybe family or friends, or maybe this is your first time joining us here today. We're so glad that you're here. You've probably heard it several times. Don't let the cafeteria fool you. We meet down the hall in the auditorium, but you know what? I love hearing your voices close in together, uh, nudging each other a little bit, encouraging one another toward love and good deeds. You can open in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 9, verses 31 is going to be our text today. We're in a series right now, so we've been, if if you're new with us, we've been walking through the book of Acts. There's the four Gospels that begin the New Testament as you open your Bible. Right after that, we we see that Jesus ascends to heaven and we see the acts of, of, of really God the Holy Spirit in and through the apostles. And the apostles are working, they're doing great things to spread the good news about Jesus all over the Roman Empire and beyond. And we've seen that they've been spreading the gospel of Jesus in Judea and Jerusalem, but this gospel is breaking out beyond the Jews, and it's going out to Gentiles. Last week, we saw a very important passage in Acts chapter 15. A very important event takes place because the Jews are asking the questions, the Jewish believers. In fact, there's a party of the Pharisees in Acts chapter 15, and they say, time out a second. This gospel of Jesus is going out to the nations, to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. But you got to know for thousands of years... God's people have been the Jews, and the way we mark ourselves as God's people is that we circumcise our sons and we obey the commands of the Torah, the law that's written down in the first five books of Moses. And so this party of the Pharisees, they say it's, it's necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and to order them to keep the law of Moses. But Peter and the, and the other leaders in Jerusalem, they say, time out, hold on a second. The Holy Spirit has come upon these Gentiles just like it came upon us. It wasn't because we were marked as God's people externally, but because God has given us the Holy Spirit. And he gave it to us simply through one simple response to the good news. And that was faith. Believing the truth about Jesus. And so Peter, his final mic drop in the book of Acts, he drops the mic and he says to all this council, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, us Jews, just as they will, as the Gentiles. But when we think about this for a moment, we're going to take a journey here over the next four weeks to ask ourselves, how did this truth work itself out in the New Testament? And specifically, how was Paul applying this truth as he goes to different regions all throughout the Roman Empire? Today, we're going to see that he writes a letter to the churches in Rome that addresses this very thing. But we have to think to ourselves for a moment, don't these these Pharisees, this party of Pharisees, don't they have a point? what, What about God's law? Does this mean that he, he doesn't care anymore about his law? Isn't he just to demand conformity to his law? How can people just get off from the demands of his law without being punished when they violate it? I mean, that's, that's, that's an issue that we have to think about. And the big issue that was in the mind of this party of the Pharisees was this, this one word, justice. Justice. Now, if you want to start a big debate tomorrow, out at your Memorial Day cookout with friends and family, you can start by asking this question, what's your view on justice in America? Now, I'll bet you'll get as many or more definitions of justice as there are people at your gathering as you've got, you know, those delicious pork ribs in your teeth, right? Not only that, you'll probably hear as many opinions denying the presence of justice in our country as you would perhaps affirming its presence in our country. This word justice and the associating ideas that come with it, it's one of the hottest topics of our day. Amen? It is. And doesn't 
And it doesn't just come in, in just one form. There's social justice, there's racial justice, there's economic justice, and so on and so forth. We don't have time to dive into all these today, but I hope you get the point that while our society longs for many things, justice is very close, if not at the top of the list. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. God's people in the Old Testament scriptures were commanded to uphold justice in society, and they were harshly rebuked when they ignored it. Think of some of the prophets, if you know your Old Testament Hebrew scriptures of Isaiah and Amos and Jeremiah. And if you look at the history of our world, and specifically in the global West, where we are here in the United States of America, you'll see that our societies are shaped by standards of justice because of, not in spite of, but because of the claims and the demands of Christianity from the Bible and its influence on our thinking. Our society's craving for justice. It's not all that bad. It's, in fact, it's, it's good. Martin Luther King Jr. said himself just a few miles away from this, from this spot where we are today in his famous speech, I Had a Dream, he says, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. He gets that right from Amos chapter 5, verse 24. So while that longing for justice is good, it also reveals something, though, that's terribly damning toward us. Our calls for justice. They're evidence that we recognize injustice when we see it, right? We know things are broken. We feel it every day. But that brokenness and that injustice, it's not just outside of us. It's also inside of us. We were created to live in a perfect world without war, without discrimination, without abuse, without financial inequity, under the rule of the king of creation, the Lord, the perfect judge. Yet we sought to shake off his perfect rule and become our own judge. And it led us to where we are now today. So while our cries for the restoration of justice are good, they're in fact hardwired in us by God. These same cries also condemn us because they reveal that we are the problem of injustice. God, the perfect judge, he looks down and he sees his creation incredibly broken and incredibly rebellious. We murder, we lie, we cheat and steal from one another. We abuse, we enslave, we discriminate. Because of these, we deserve God's just punishment for our re sinful rebellion against him and against one another. So our calls for justice, because, uh, so our calls for justice, they reveal an even deeper problem than what is simply felt on a societal level. No, we long for justice because we ourselves are unjust. Eat deep down in each and every single one of us. This is one of the great problems the Bible describes about the human condition. Our predicament is this. How can a, a just God have a relationship with unjust people? How can a just God have a relationship with an unjust people? And I'm not talking about you only. I'm talking about me standing up here as well. How can the judge love and accept us and still maintain his perfect justice? Don't the Gentiles also need to obey God's law of Moses? But the Apostle Paul, he writes the letter to the Romans for this very dilemma. Let's take a look at it together. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. It says this, What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they've not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord today. And and the Apostle Paul, he writes this letter to the churches in Rome to address this very dilemma. How can a righteous judge have a relationship with unjust and unrighteous people? That brings us to our big idea today. The gospel plus nothing justifies us. Some of you are mathematicians. We try and think of this equation. You add anything to the equation, it changes the outcome of that equation problem, right? I'm showing my ignorance here. I don't even know the right language to use, but... But I can tell you from this that we see from Scripture the gospel plus nothing justifies us. What does that word justify mean? It means to declare righteous. I believe it's a legal term that the Scripture describes. It's rendering a favorable verdict. It's to vindicate someone and show them that they are righteous. But the problem is, is that how can God call me righteous and just when I am very unjust? So we see Paul's argument here in three moves. The law can justify us, oh, excuse me, the law cannot justify us because we're all sinful. We see that in verses 9 through 20. The good news is that Jesus came to justify sinners. We see that in verses 21 to 26. And then thirdly, we trust in Jesus and not the law, therefore, to justify us. Verses 27 to 31. The gospel plus nothing. The good news about Jesus plus no other message and no other method is the only solution to make us sinful, unrighteous people right with God again. Let's take a look at point number one. 
The law can't justify us because we're all sinful. He goes on to say, verses 9 to 18, he describes this. He's, he's quoting from various psalms. He's collecting them all together, and he's showing that all of us, every single one of us, is a sinner. Friend, I, I want to let you know here today, you may be thinking, hey, I, this is the first time at Fairfax Bible Church. I've walked in the door, and the first thing that Pastor Matthew has to tell me is, I'm a sinner, right? I'm a sinner. Well, that, that's not really awesome and comfortable news, but guess what? It's the truth. It's the truth. We would be doing you such a disservice if we came in here and patted you on the back and say, all of your immorality, all of your immoral thoughts, all of your resistance to worshiping the one true God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's, it's going to be okay. You're, you're just fine. Oh, no, friends. It wasn't fine for me. It's not fine for you. We have to embrace this truth first and foremost. If we want to be right with God, we have to accept the fact that Paul says, according to the scriptures, no one is right before God in and of themselves. In fact, we're all sinners. And that's me. That's me. I'll stand up here first and foremost. I'll raise my hand. Yes, Lord, that's me. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. All, both Jews and Greeks. He says, are the, are the Jews any better off? After all, they've, they've had all this tradition of, of God's revelation. But he says, in the end of it, they're, they're not any better off because they're just as sinful, as sinful in their hearts as anyone else. Those with the law and those without the law are unjust and sinful. No, no one. He goes on to say no one, no one, no one over and over and over again. It means it's pervasive. There's no exceptions, no exceptions whatsoever. But think about the, the, some of the descriptions he talks about in these verses. He says uh, our, our, our lips are full of deceit. Our tongues have deceit. It's almost as if there's venom on our tongues like a snake, right? Our mouths are full of curses and bitterness, and we shed blood with our hands, and we bring people, one another, to ruin and misery, and there's no fear of God before their eyes. Heinous crimes before our God. None is righteous. Everyone's a sinner. And so we think, okay, well then maybe I'll start to look at God's law and figure out what are those commands that I'm disobeying. And, and now I'm going to try really hard to obey all of them. Friends, you know what James, a friend of Paul and Peter, do you know what he said in, in, in his letter to the churches? He says, whoever uh, keeps the law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. I'm guilty of breaking all of it just by one violation of God's law. And in fact, the law, it doesn't teach us how we can be made right with God. In fact, what Paul says in, in Romans 3 verse 20, he says, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified, since through the, the law comes the knowledge of how can I get right with God. No, comes my knowledge of my sin. It's like looking in, in a mirror that reveals our true self. I used to have hair. I, I used to have hair. And I used to walk by first thing in the morning and be like, that hair's all messed up. One thing that's kind of nice about being bald is I look in front of that mirror anymore and it doesn't, it's not quite as bad hair-wise. There's other things that are happening, but it's not quite as bad hair-wise. But when we look into the law, it doesn't fix us. It reveals just how messed up we are. So we think to ourselves, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get by by obeying the law. Maybe I can stuff down those violations of God's law. Maybe I could stuff them deep so that they can never be revealed. 
Back in 2014, my family and I, we were, we were looking for a place to live. Our landlords had told us that we had to leave. They wanted to sell their home, and it was kind of a blow to our family. And so we were praying and seeking the Lord, and, and we believe God answered our prayers in a very significant way because there was one home that we looked at that we almost got caught in a fraudulent scam. You see, there was this person that was actually figured out how to, uh, through uh, some sort of listing agency, he found out the code for a lockbox for a key that was at a house that was for sale. And he had the audacity to go to that home, take the key, pull the for sale sign out out of the yard, and offer it online for rent. And so he had people, so you think to yourself, we're well, not getting caught in this scam, right, Matthew and Laura? Right? Well, guess what happens? My wife goes over there. The guy is showing the home to people. I mean, this is amazing. It's not his home. He's showing the home to people. He's taking applications and all these things. And now he starts texting me. We're like, hey, we're really interested in this. It's right in our price range. It's a nice home. And all of a sudden, I start to smell some things that just aren't adding up right. I can tell the story, whole story for you for another time. What it comes down to is this. It gets so far, we call the police, and my wife becomes a part of a sting operation. He had never met me. He had met her. And so they use her as the bait for this sting operation to catch this guy in the act. So she's going to go over there. And she was mad because she baked this guy cookies, right? (laughs) Do not mess with my wife when she bakes you cookies. You better be nice to her. And so she's like, I'm going after this guy. And I'm sweating. I'm freaking out, right? I got our, our three kids, and I'm waiting at the police station. I'm just praying, Lord, keep her safe. And, and I'm assured there's a police officer with her that's, that's packing, right? And he's ready to go. Anyway, they're pulling up to, to meet this guy, and he starts to kind of sniff some things out. They just aren't right. So he starts pulling away, thinking that he could hide and not get caught in this moment, that he can get away and maybe try this plot somewhere else. The police, they see him, they pull him over, and he's trying to show his innocence, but there was something that they found. When you opened the trunk of his car, you found the for sale sign, you found the rental applications, you found tax documents, you found all the evidence to show how he's broken the law. Friends, I don't care how much you try and dig, we all got violations of God's law hidden in the trunks of our cars. You could try and bury it. You could try and get rid of it. You can try and hide it. But all of us, all without exception, are sinners before God's holy and righteous judgment throne. And it doesn't help to hide it in the trunk. We had to come clean and say, Lord, here's all my garbage. I confess that I'm a sinner. But that doesn't get us all the way. The law can't justify us because we're all sinful, but that still leaves us sinful, right? But Paul goes on and he transitions in this text and he says the good news, the good news is that Jesus came to justify sinners. Jesus came so that he can make sinners right with God again to declare upon them a verdict that they did not earn. Praise be to God. We've been singing about it all morning. First thing we see is that Jesus' arrival shows God's righteousness. God has not even lowered his righteousness even a little bit. Because maybe that's a solution, right? Maybe the good news is this, is that I'm a sinner. I violated his law. So he just brings the, the threshold down some. He just brings the standard down some. But that's not what we see here in the good news about Jesus. Paul says, no, no, no. It's not that he brought his, his righteousness down, but that when Jesus came, it was the full demonstration, the manifestation, the revelation of God's righteousness. How? Did he come down in judgment and wrath and fire and brimstone? No, that's not it, friends. The arrival of Jesus, he comes to satisfy the demands of God's righteousness. 
I love what J.I. Packer, he summarizes the gospel in just three words. God saves sinners. God saves sinners. Jesus' arrival is the arrival of the good news. And it says in Romans 3.23, if you've grown up around church much and in kids' church or Awana or something like that, you might have memorized this verse, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a big problem, but Paul goes on to say the righteousness hasn't come down, but Jesus came to justify sinners. He came, to ju- he came, he came so that you and so that I could be declared right before God's holy throne of judgment. How did Jesus do that? How did he do that? He goes on to say, Jesus became the propitiation, the propitiation for our sins, verse 25. He became the propitiation. What in the world does that mean? I mean, I don't know if you go to the marketplace very often or on the job and you throw around the word propitiation all the time. It's not a word I use ever except when I'm preaching, right? Propitiation, what in the world does that mean? Well, it's the same word. Uh, Paul is using this word here. It's the same word that's, that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for this place that stood above the Ark of the Covenant in God's Holy of Holies. It's this lid that rested on the ark. And what was so special about this lid is that there were several carved angels that were over at cherubim. And what the priest would do in the Old Testament so that God wouldn't destroy his people Israel is that the priest would go in with the blood of a sacrificed animal and he would sprinkle the blood on that mercy seat so that sins could be atoned for, so that God's anger and wrath would be appeased so that he wouldn't have to judge his people any longer and his righteousness would still be upheld. And what Paul is saying, Jesus is able to justify sinners because Jesus himself became that mercy seat for you and for me. You see, it wasn't that he was pointing back and saying, yeah, Jesus is kind of like that mercy seat. What he's saying is that that mercy seat is like Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of God's perfect sacrifice for sins. The sacrifice of blood that turns God's punishment away from his people. Romans 1.18, Paul said it before. He said, the wrath of God. Did you know that God has wrath? Righteous wrath? I mean, that just makes me shake in my knees. But it's the truth of scripture. It says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But Jesus' sacrifice that blood that he shed, becoming that mercy seat, that place where God's justice and his forgiveness meet right there at that place. It appeases God's wrath. It turns his wrath away from us and away from all sinners. The justice, the just punishment for sins that was demanded because of our crimes was paid for by our Savior and Messiah. It's the revelation of God's righteousness right there. Jesus says, I will fulfill the demands for my people. They deserve to be punished. I'm going to stand in their place. I'll become their mercy seat so that there's no more judgment, no more wrath, no more anger for sins. He says, not only this, but it was for former sins. It had to demonstrate God's righteousness because there were generations upon generations upon generations that came before Jesus. How were they not consumed? Think about King David. How was King David not consumed? He committed adultery. He, he stole a man's wife from him and then he murdered him in cold blood. How in the world can God not strike David down in a moment? It's because God was looking forward to the mercy seat who's Jesus so that he could be forgiven of his sins 
David was disciplined as as a son, but he was never uh, punished as a criminal. Why? Because God's righteous demands were fulfilled in a Messiah, a mercy seat, a Savior who was to come. Well, not only does Jesus' arrival to justify sinners show God's righteousness, Jesus' arrival also shows us God's grace. Again, verse 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But verse 24 says, and they are justified by the grace of God as a gift. It's almost redundant. By a gift that's very giving. The grace of God as a gift. Now, it would be the cruelest thing to do this to your kids to, you know, if you've got kids or, or a loved one, to give them a gift and to say, okay, it charged about $49.95, so you can pay that in installments, right? That's not a gift. That's something they would have to earn. But God says, I give it to you as a, as a gift, as a gift that demonstrates my, my grace. We receive this redemption that's in Christ Jesus, this idea of redemption that we receive as a gift. It's a, it's a ransoming. It's, it's a release. It's a, a liberation and a, a deliverance. It's a setting free. God redeemed his people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. This is the kind of language that Paul's doing. If you can remember long ago, hundreds of years before, God did a mighty work to deliver his people out of Egypt. You've ever seen the Ten Commandments with, uh, what's his name? Yeah, you, you, Charles and Esther, you know all about it, right? God delivered his people out of Egypt. Delivered them. How? Well, he delivered his people through a final plague. There was death to all the firstborn in Egypt, but God in his grace, he rescued his people. At the first Passover, God instructed his people to spread the blood of the lamb over the doorposts over their homes. God passed over the homes of the Israelites in care and protection over them so that they wouldn't be struck down by God's anger. God passed over their homes while the firstborn of the Egyptians were destroyed. But here's the key, friends. Here's the key. How how do I get access to this grace? How do the Israelites in Egypt, how do they get spared from being, you know, slain by this this enemy of death that was coming through? Well, it, it was through this. They had to be in the house. They had to be in the house. Again, Romans 3.24 says that God's people are justified by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In Christ. Christ Jesus. That's where the deliverance is found. That's where the rescue is found. That's where the escape from the judgment that you and I deserve for sins is found. That's where all the forgiveness that I need is found. It's found in Christ Jesus. This is good news, friends. All I, have to, I don't have to worry about, what, what about my past sins? What about all those things I wish I could forget? What about the things that I think I might do tomorrow or the day after that? I know I'm not perfect, and God says, you don't have to worry about it. You're in my son. You're in the mercy seat. The blood has been applied to you, and you have been forgiven all of your sins. The redemption, the setting free, the liberation from all the demands of the law has come upon you, Matthew, because you are in Christ Jesus. Friend, are you in Christ Jesus today? In his grace, in his mercy, putting your faith and trust in him. It's only found in him. And this is amazing. Verse 26. He says, all this has happened so that God might be just to demonstrate his righteousness. And he can be the justifier by his grace of the one who has faith 
in Jesus. Here we have the perfect meeting of God's righteousness and his grace all together right here in Jesus on the cross. All the demands of his justice are satisfied. All the grace and love towards sinners he could ever offer is given to us in Christ. The cross of Jesus is where God's righteousness and his love and his grace meet. I love the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. It's one of my favorite stories. If you know the story, you know of, of Edmund, one of the kids that walks into that wardrobe, and, and he's, he's always at odds with his, his, his brother and his two sisters. And so he goes in by himself into Narnia through this wardrobe, and he, he, and he meets uh, the, the villain of the story. He meets the white witch. And this white witch wants to kill all of the children, but he doesn't, she doesn't reveal her plot to Edmund. But she says, bring your brother and sisters over. And so he decides he's going to uh, bring his brother and sisters over because he thinks he's going to be a prince and he's going to rule with this queen of Narnia. And he betrays his brother and his sister, sisters. And he betrays the one true creator of Narnia who is Aslan the lion. But, but after a while, Edmund realizes that he's in a trap. He's in a trap and he has to get away from this white witch and he eventually is able to flee and, and he joins Aslan's army and he joins Aslan's company but the white witch comes because she knows something. This is unjust. This is a traitor and a criminal who gave up his sisters and brother to me. He's the one that swore allegiance to me and now he, his life is owed to me. And so Edmund is shaking, Right? Am I going to be killed for this? The beautiful beauty of the story is that Aslan says, and we don't know the plot until it comes later, he says, I'm going to step into Edmund's place. I'm going to come and I'm going to shed my blood so that Edmund can go free. And at that place, at that stone table, if you're familiar with the story, it's awful, it's terrible. All of this, these wicked creatures are so excited that they get to kill this roaring lion and creator of Narnia, but in that moment, Aslan the lion was doing something that no one else could do for Edmund. He was a perfect sacrifice in Edmund's place. Aslan knew the deep magic of Narnia, that justice demanded blood. And so Aslan gave his own blood on behalf of Edmund. What a beautiful story. Friends, that, that story is awesome, but you realize that's, that's, that's just pointing to the more beautiful story of Jesus for you and me. I'm Edmund. You're Edmund. We all deserve to die for our rebellion against the creator of our world, the real world, the God and, and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But Jesus, as the better and true Aslan, steps in and says, I will take all the justice that you deserve, all the punishment, so that you could receive free grace. This is the good news of Jesus the gospel plus nothing justifies us. So, so how do we respond to that? Paul says it in, in the final few verses as we, as we try and wrap this up. It, it's this, therefore, if, if we're all sinners and only Jesus can justify us, therefore, what do we do? We trust in Jesus and not the law to justify us. We trust in Jesus and not the law to justify us. Paul says, faith in Jesus, not our works, is what makes us right before God. If, if you're like Edmund, if you're like me, there's nothing I can do to undo the, uh, the, the, the betrayal that I had committed. There's nothing you can do, friend, to undo the wrongs that you've done. You've got some sin in the trunk, and you can't hide it from this God. 
Don't trust in your good works. Don't, you know, if you become the, the, the highest of, of, of Jews that, that tries to obey all the law of Moses, you've already stumbled at one point. The only hope is to trust in the good work of Jesus. Our boasting, our bragging, our self-righteousness, our pride, it has no place. The gospel has no room for self-righteousness. If you plan to get into God's kingdom through your own efforts and your own goodness, you have no place. Why? Because verse 28 holds true. It's almost like Paul is, is reiterating what Peter says in Acts 15. We hold, we consider that one is justified, that one is declared right by faith apart from the works of the law. This answers the questions of the Pharisees in Acts 15. We can't be justified by the law, but only through the free gift of Jesus, the demonstration of God's righteousness. So what do we do? Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Say, I want to be as much into Christ as I can can be. I don't want to be one whole body in and one foot out because I don't want any judgment. I want to be in Jesus. I want to know that he's paid all the penalty for my sins. I want to know that I've got all the blessings of his grace showered upon me and I cherish him and I love him. Believe in Jesus. And the good news is that it's not just for you. It's for everyone. It's for everyone. This Christianity, it's, it's not just a Western thing. It's not just an American thing. And it's especially not just a white thing or black thing or whatever. It's the good news of Jesus for every man and woman and child of every language, of every tongue, of every tribe, of every culture all over this globe. Praise be to God. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the Gentiles. It's for all. And Paul finally says after all this, he says, we uphold the law more than anybody else. You think that we're trying to tear the law down? He says, we're upholding it better than anyone else so that God might be just and his righteousness and, he's ju- and he justifies us. Everyone can be justified. This is the most honoring view of the law. Only perfect satisfaction of God's righteous demands in Jesus is acceptable. Anything less, your human effort, my human effort, works of the law, it just drags the law down. But the gospel holds it up because it says, Jesus fulfills God's perfect righteousness for you and for me. Got any baseball fans out there? You baseball fans? Matt Rumball, raise your hand. You're a baseball fan. Yeah, there you go, go. Can't see him. He's in the back, right? Now, Matt, tell me something. Uh, what's a good batting average? 300's a good batting average, right? It's really good. 400, though, what would you say about 400? What kind of adjective would you use for that? Hall of Fame. Amazing, right? Throughout the history of baseball, thousands upon thousands, upon 10,000s of batters that have played in baseball, only 42 players have ever hit 400. Do you know what 400 is? You go up to bat four times, uh, 10 times, and only four times you get a hit. That means six times you get out. You're less than half as good to, to get a hit when you come up to the plate. Friends, a 400 batting average is like the most amazing Hall of Fame batting average you could ever have. But 400 is still only four out of 10. Friends, your works of the law, you could be a 400 hitter. It does not fulfill the perfect righteousness of Jesus. You could be a Hall of Fame law keeper and yet still be shut out. Why? Because the gospel alone upholds the law and it's the only thing that can justify sinners. Only the gospel because only Jesus has a perfect 1,000 batting average for you and me. Only he can meet the demands of God's justice. 
And in closing, that brings us back to our big idea, the gospel plus nothing justifies us. But what does this mean for Monday? If you're new with us, we just want you to know that that's just a question that we try and ask around here as often as we can. We don't want to be Sunday churchgoers and Monday through Saturday we're living like hell. We want to be people that are devoted to Jesus every single day of the week. What does this mean for Monday? I'll give you two words, victory and humility. The fact that the gospel plus nothing justifies us gives us victory and it gives us humility. First of all, in victory, you have to understand something. If you're like me, there are many days I feel like I'm this big. I feel like such a huge failure. I feel like I've, I've violated God's law. I know that I haven't been kind to my wife or my kids, or maybe I, I, I was short with someone else, or maybe I've had wicked and evil thoughts. As much as I want to obey and love God's commands, I know that I fall short, and I feel very defeated. But friends, in Christ... You and I can never be as bad as we feel because Jesus paid all the penalty for our sin. Even at your worst, even at my worst, I'm still loved because I'm in Christ. All of God's justice toward my sin has been satisfied. Victory, perfect victory all the time, even when I don't feel it. Even when you don't feel it, you've won if you are in Christ. Every twinge of the, of the pain of punishment was born for you and for me in Christ. I can never receive punishment any longer for my sin. And in him, I will always be counted as righteous, as just before God, the perfect judge. I love the song that we sing sometimes. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me, and I'm in him. We just sang the song. Well, how does it go? Victory, victory. Hang, can't remember right now. I can't either. But it's victory, the power of Christ. It's a new song, so I don't know yet. Victory in Christ. I want to ask you today, what sins, what failures, what memories or, or addictions, what pains, what regrets do you feel today? If you're like me, I, I could spend a long time listing all of my failures, all of the, the sinful memories, both in the body and in the mind. I could feel defeated every day. But when I remember, I'm in Christ. When, when you remember you're in Christ, when we come together and we walk for Christ, with Christ together, one of our W's, we remind each other, even at your worst, you are loved by God and God's righteous judgment upon you has been satisfied in Jesus. Friend, there's, there's no reason for you to be a defeated Christian today. You can be a victorious Christian if you're in Christ. If, you, if you've been coming here today and you feel like, I feel like the most defeated person in the room, what an invitation this is today. Not, not to pick yourself up by your bootstraps, but to say, can I come and be in Christ today and have all the debt of my sin washed away by my mercy seat, King Jesus who gave his life for me. So not only are we called to be a victorious people, but, but also, what does this mean for Monday? It means that we, be, we can be the most humble people. Victory and humility. 
It means in Christ, I can never take credit for my status in his family. Even at my best, I'm loved not because of what I do, but because I'm in Christ. All of God's acceptance of me is because Jesus paid for my sins apart from the works of the law or apart from any of my good works. I'm here today, not because of me, but because I'm in him. It breeds humility, the gospel. A genuine understanding that I am who I am because of Christ alone causes me to have humility, and it should cause us to have humility. A genuine understanding that I am who I am because of Jesus Christ alone. So when I feel tempted to be consumed by my status, by my reputation, by my achievements, I remember that I've been saved by amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. There's humility all over that verse, right, friends? I'm saved by God's amazing grace alone, and I've received his free gift which causes me to say, I want to offer that to others as well. Because I'm forgiven, I can stoop in humility to forgive and accept others as I've been accepted and forgiven in Christ. I didn't earn it, and others don't have to earn it with me. I want to ask you, what grudges are you holding today? What bitterness? Who's hurt you? What conflict are you in today that you've been withholding forgiveness toward another? If you're in Christ, you didn't earn the forgiveness that you've already received. Today, I want to remind you, and I want to remind myself, as we look at Jesus and what he's done for us, that we've been accepted by God, not because of our goodness, but because we are in Christ. Because the gospel plus nothing justifies us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we come to you now and we tell you, Thank you. What, what else could we say except thank you that you've made a way for unjust people like me to be in your family, though I could have never deserved it or earned it or done anything to erase the debt that I owed to you because of sin. But, but I could say I'm here before you today, Lord, and I'm right before you. I have peace with God. I, I have victory today. Because I, along with my brothers and sisters who are in Christ here today, we are in Christ. We are in Christ. That gives us a victory that we could sing about and we get to sing about for all of eternity, but also gives us a deep sense of humility and gratitude and thankfulness because we realize we're not here because we've earned it. We're not here because we go to church every Sunday, because we uh, bring the best snacks at small group or we even serve with the little kids and wipe their noses. No, we're here today because Jesus paid it all. We're in Christ. So we give you thanks for all of that today. Help us to live Monday, Tuesday, and beyond with a sense of victory in Christ and humility in Christ as a watching world looks at us and says, What's different about them? Is it their political position? Is it their position on social issues? Do they even care about justice? We could say yes, we do. Because Jesus, the just one, stood in our place. And we offer his righteousness and grace to all who would receive and be found in him. 
Lord, if there's anyone here today that is not in Christ, they've not turned away from their sin, they've not even turned away from their self-righteousness to trust in Christ alone, oh Lord, would you work on their hearts today? Work on their hearts. Let them not leave today without speaking with someone they know who is in Christ so that they can repent and believe the good news and be found in him, victorious and humble because of what Christ has done for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.